0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
1: This week on the podcast, I know I say I have an extra special guest all the time, but I really have an extra special guest. His name is James Montier. You know him from his years as partners with Albert Edwards at both Dresdner and Societe Generale. He is currently on the asset allocation team at GMO and... I know James in passing for many years, and I have been chasing him down to come into the studio to record uh, one of our little chats, and he is so difficult to pin down. He is located uh, in the hinterlands of the UK. He's not even in London. He's hiding in an undisclosed location north of uh, north of the city, uh, and he is in and out of Boston and New York so frequently it's tough to grab him. But since we're all sheltering in place and he has nowhere to go, I was able to pin him down for the better part of an hour and got to ask him about half of the questions I want to. Uh, James is really a fascinating thinker. Uh, He describes that as his job. He gets paid to sit and think about the difficult questions that other people don't want to think about. He also uh, has written pretty extensively not only about behavioral investing and finance, but about some of the challenges of of being a value investor and looking at markets from a perspective of having a margin of safety. Regardless, you will find this to be an absolutely fascinating conversation. He is a really thoughtful, intriguing guy, and he did not hold back at all. So with no further ado, my conversation with GMO's James Montier.
0: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra
1: special guest this week is James Montier. He is a member of the investment committee for GMO, the famed investment farm headed by Jeremy Grantham. Previously, he worked at Dresdner as well as Societe Generale as a market strategist. He has an ardent reputation On Wall Street, he has been named best strategist a number of years and has a reputation as both a bear and a value manager. James Montier, welcome to a shelter-in-place edition of Masters in Business.
2: Thank you very much, Barry. It's a delight to be here.
1: Let's talk a little bit about your current gig. You're working at GMO, where you've been for a couple of years. But before you started at GMO, you were at Societe Generale. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your role there.
2: Sure. So um, I've done a lot of things over the years. And incredibly, I've been at GMO for for over a decade now, um, which is is startling um, and testament to how time flies when you're actually uh, enjoying yourself. Um, So what I do at GMO is, is essentially ask the questions that people don't want to be asked. I uh, uh, finally found a, a, a job that I am perfectly suited for. My job is to think about all the places we could be wrong, um, whether that's in, in kind of uh, the micro level uh, or indeed at the macro level. So I spend all of my time worrying about what the models are missing um, for part of my job. Uh, and then the other part of my job is, is really thumping the table when, when things get cheap. Um, so when I joined GMO, uh, Jeremy uh, said to me, "Look, one of the things that we really want you to do is, is when you think things are cheap, really, really scream and shout and make sure that we're not missing out." Um, I've only had to do that a couple of times, uh, which is a sad reflection on the state of the markets that uh, I've, I've had to sit through for the last decade or so. Um, but it is—it's uh, it, a kind of perfect job. There are essentially two jobs at GMO you would love, and, and one that you you really wouldn't want. Um, the, the two that you would love are. are the one that, that Jeremy has as, as chief strategist uh, and the one that I have, which is effectively um, Minister Without Portfolio. Uh, the one you really wouldn't want to have is, is poor old Ben, uh, Ben Inker, the head of asset allocation, because he gets to sit there and has to kind of listen to Jeremy and listen to me and then try and build that into a, a real portfolio. So uh, his is the job you, you definitely wouldn't want. Um, mine is, is, a, is a pretty sweet gig.
1: So part of your description is to pound the table when things get cheap. Markets just dropped 35% last month. Was there any table pounding going on at GMO, or did they not get cheap enough?
2: There was was indeed some table pounding going on. I was getting very, very excited uh, about um, uh, particularly non-U.S.-based equities. The U.S. didn't get cheap enough for for my particular uh, brand of value, but... um, Emerging markets uh, were looking really, really cheap, um, and a lot of the international markets, uh, Europe was was looking pretty, uh, pretty damned exciting as well. So there was uh, a, f- a fair amount of, of table pounding, and hence the reason I actually put pen to paper uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and wrote uh, a piece on fear and the psychology of bear markets to um, to try and galvanise people to to action, um, because it, it struck me that this was. One of those opportunities where, where prices and fundamentals were potentially getting dislocated. So let's talk
1: about the prior time prices really got cheap. You and your partner over at SockGen and Dresner, Albert Edwards, were famously bearish heading into the 0809 crisis. What were you looking at that had made you that negative on equities prior to the great financial crisis?
2: So I think from, from our perspective, there were a kind of number of events that were going on um, that, that really kind of triggered our caution. But the most obvious one was kind of the uh, immense housing bubble that the, we've been talking about for, in fairness, a couple of years before the GFC. So as usual, um, with most of my work, I, I find it's it's best to read it, uh, then put it in a drawer and forget about it for two years and then take it out and, and actually act on it um, it seems to take about that long for for my my sense of timing to come good, um, but it, it was it was really the housing market and the the economic imbalances that were so um, obvious to anyone who, who kind of studied the flow of funds who who looked at the sectoral balances for the u s um, there were just such obvious glaring um, imbalances that that were unsustainable. Um, and as ever, an unsustainable process uh can't go on forever but it, it generally goes on for longer than one imagines. And that was one of the uh, the things that we were really battling with um was was the kind of when and, and it is every time when we when we get bearish, it it's the the when um is always the problem. But the, the economic imbalances were just so marked that it was it was hard not to be uh bearish, couple that with what was a pretty damned expensive market um, on yeah, a simple Shiller-style valuation, a cyclically adjusted PE. And it, it led us to be yeah as bearish as, as I think we'd probably ever been.
1: Yeah, that, that timing issue is always problematic because, as we've seen over various cycles, expensive stocks can get much more expensive and cheap stocks can get much cheaper. It, it, is it really just a two-year lag? How do you deal with I guess we could call that the momentum issue when you're looking at either cheap or pricey stocks.
2: Yeah, it is. It is a momentum issue. You're absolutely right. And it it is both momentum in in terms of uh, the movement of prices and also momentum in in terms of uh, the underlying economics of the situation as well on occasion. Uh, And I think the the way I've been forced to reconcile it is to say, look, I simply don't know. I I never know when something is going to, to unravel. Um, I can often see the, the the unsustainable nature of what is happening, but it doesn't tell me anything about timing. And I think that's one of the things that that really harks back to some of the writings of, of Ben Graham. You know, ben Graham said there were two ways of thinking um, uh, about uh, investing in the market, the way of timing and the, the way of pricing. Um, and the way of timing was trying to effectively guess what was going to happen. Um, and that is essentially next to impossible as far as I'm concerned. I think there are potentially people who can do it. I just know that I am definitely not one of them. Um, and on the other hand, there is the way of pricing. And on the way of pricing, you, you simply follow the rules of valuation. Now, if you're gonna do that, you're going to need to have a long time horizon. And that is one of the most important, if not the most important, colliery of being a value-based investor is you're gonna to have to be long-term. And the problem is, of course, as, as we well know, everybody starts off as a long-term investor. Uh, But as soon as they hit a a patch of poor performance, they become uh, rather too short-term. And that is why I think so many people struggle with the whole um, staying true to being a value-based investor over any length of time.
1: Sounds like the Mike Tyson quote, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. You're saying the best laid plans (laughs) of, uh, of investors work great until there's a little volatility and turbulence like we've seen earlier this year.
2: Exactly right. It's, it's precisely that it's, it's easy to have a plan. Um, it's the discipline of sticking to that plan. And it's one of the reasons that I, I, I enjoy my time at GMO so much is because we have a discipline. We have uh, a series of valuation based forecasts that help us anchor um, and in psychology, as you know, I, I have a, a great interest in psychology. Um, there is an expression which is, if you cannot de-bias, then rebias. And what that really means is it's incredibly hard to stop people being people. Um, it is our very nature. So instead of trying to stop them being um, people, the, the best thing to do is to try and, knowing they're going to fall into these behavioral pitfalls, is to design a process that will actually allow them to... Um, benefit from uh those uh same behavioral pitfalls it's kind of like nudge if you like um and and the the way that we do it is to have that valuation discipline so when the world is falling apart our value models are all else being equal going to be saying hey look things are getting cheap you should be buying um now we are just as much human as everybody else and i like to sit around and go well you know what on do what don't the models know what what are, you know why what happens if the world does end tomorrow that kind of thing but Having that conversation is at least step step in the right direction and seeing those numbers when you're seeing you have double-digit rates of of prospective return, um, you have to be really, really sure that you know something the the model doesn't in order to override it.
1: Let's talk about um, behavior and valuation. I love this quote of yours, leaving the trees could have been our first mistake. Our minds are suited to solving problems related to our survival rather than being optimized for investing decisions. Explain that, if you would.
2: Of course. So I think it's, it's kind of important that we acknowledge uh, the, that we are the way we are because of evolution. Um, evolution has, has designed us to work. But evolution is, in essence, a glacial process. It does not uh, reflect the world we live in. Um, you know, we are really designed for the African savanna of 150,000 years ago, uh, not... Uh, certainly the the industrial age of a hundred years ago, let alone the information age in which we find ourselves drowning today So I think that the the brain is uh, a product of those same evolutionary forces that have designed us in every other regard and That means our brains are not well adapted to the problems. We're trying to solve and so if we think about fear as a really good example of this um, in evolutionary terms, the cost of getting it wrong is, is pretty terrible. So if you see a, 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 a twig and uh, you, you think it's a snake, that's fine, right? It, it, you stepped out of the way, you took a, a slightly wider path, but it was fine. Get that wrong, and the downside is, is potentially um, pretty pretty terrible. If you think it was a twig and you step on it and it turns out it was a snake and it bites you, you are evolutionary toast. Um, and so the brain is, is designed... To work in a certain way and when it comes to fear, uh, it's designed to, to make very short, quick decisions that will keep us alive. Now the problem is that when it comes to investing, and uh, let's say markets are falling as they obviously have been um, over the last month or so, um, then what we're doing is, is we're triggering that fear response. Uh, and there was a wonderful behavioural experiment um, by uh, Shiv and, and some co-authors. Um, who who looked at the impact of fear uh, on investment decision-making. And they they set up a really simple game where you got to choose uh, over 20 rounds each round whether you wanted to invest. And they wanted to see if you uh, suffered a loss in the previous round, would it impact your decision to invest in the next round? And obviously, it shouldn't if you were rational. Um, But what they found was for for normal people, uh, people like you and I, um, that actually it did. When you lost money in the previous round, they were much, much less likely to invest in the next round. That wasn't true for a subset of people they examined, and that subset were very unusual. Um, They had a specific form of brain damage, which meant that they could no longer feel fear. Uh, Their amygdala, which is one of the brain center of fear, had been irreparably damaged. Um, and so they behaved much more like, um, a model of rationality. They invested irrespective of the outcome in the previous round. So our brains are are designed by this process of of evolution to work in certain ways that keep us alive, but don't give us necessarily the correct outcome when it comes to the world in which we're trying to, to think today in investing.
1: So the secret to good investing is really just a modest amount of brain damage.
2: I, I'm standing by that, and, and I'm pretty sure most of my friends would attest to that.
1: <laughs> I, I can't say I can't say I disagree with that. So so, <laughs> or or if not brain damage, at least a little bit of behavior control that doesn't look like the typical normal human being, and is a little more embracing of risk than our evolutionary history might imply. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so let's talk a little bit about how some of these behavioral biases manifest themselves among investors. Uh, when I look around the world and, and I look at some of the areas that you have described as cheap, emerging markets, Europe, uh, elsewhere, especially away from the United States, investors seem to really hate those areas and have voted with their dollars. How much of this is a rational response to problems in EM and problems in Europe? And how much of this is just being too fearful for attractively priced stocks?
2: Yeah, that is the, 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 the pertinent and perennial question that one has to ask. Um, and the answer is we, we can never be sure, uh, or at least anyone who says they're sure is, is probably a liar or a fool or some linear combination of the two um because you can't know and so all you can do is say have i got sufficient margin of safety and it goes back to good old ben graham um and i know i sound like a broken record always quoting ben graham but to me he really is one of the most insightful uh of uh history's uh, examples of great investors um because He always said you have to operate with a margin of safety because you know that if you're dealing with something like EM, yes, they have much lower legal standards, much poorer corporate governance than, than say, the U.S. does. Uh, But we all know that, and that's already in the price. And so if those things then look really cheap, you're like, well, look, let's take Gazprom as an example, Uh, the the Russian energy company. It trades on a, a PE of about two times um which is completely ludicrous nobody thinks gazprom is worth two it's either worth zero uh, because putin thinks it belongs to him um or it's worth a lot more than two but it trades on two um and you're like well look i am being paid a lot to take on that risk now if push comes to shove i will probably lose because putin owns tanks and i own bits of paper and his tanks will trump my bits of paper but I, every year that I, I get that carry on, on Gazprom, it's paying out a dividend yield of, of, of 6 7%. Um, that's a very nice return for taking that degree of risk um, every year without any worry about anything else. Uh, and ultimately, you know, as long as you size a position like that appropriately, uh, I think it, it just makes a great deal of sense because your margin of safety is so high.
1: So what are the credible reasons for this ongoing gap in valuations between a country like the United States that arguably still has the rule of law and countries like Russia that have been described as, you know, a criminal organization with a standing army? How can an investor confidently put money at risk in a place like China, like Russia, where you never know how the rules are going to
2: change from quarter to quarter, month to month. It's it, that is, and that is why they, they trade cheap, right? You're absolutely right. You, you, you have a lower degree of confidence and you have to scale your positions appropriately. Uh, so you, you don't put everything into Russia. You don't put everything into China. You build a diversified portfolio uh, across any number of, of countries, um, ranging from yeah, the, the ones with the greatest corporate governance risk, China and Russia, up to, to places that have considerably less, Taiwan, Korea. Um, they're not perfect by any means, but you are being compensated an awful lot for the risks involved, uh, right now at least. Not always the case, but right now, that is the the the, the return you are getting, I think way outweighs the, the, the risks you are undertaking. Um, and so to me, the, the arithmetic of the situation says, look, size it appropriately and invest with degree of, of confidence, um, but acknowledge the fact that, yes, you are taking on more risk, and therefore you, you want that greater return. That's why these things are priced at a discount, even under normal times. Now, right now, that discount is way wider than normal times. So your margin of safety is, is much greater than than average, uh, which is why these things, to me, look very attractive.
1: So, so speaking of that giant spread between EM and developed nations, especially the U.S., I'm assuming you're predicating some of this on the concept of mean reversion, that eventually stocks that are expensive will come down in price, stocks that are cheap will rise in price, and things will revert to normal. But we've seen like a decade of EM underperforming the U.S. Are you counting on mean reversion to to shift this, or is something more fundamental happening that's kept this spread as wide as it's been for as long as it's been?
2: Well, it's, uh, it's, it's exactly the debate that we have had internally, interestingly. That it, strangely enough, given how uh, wrong we have been on the U.S., um, it, is, it is certainly the, the question that we have spent an inordinate amount of time trying to uh, understand is how, how could we be wrong? What could stop mean reversion? Uh, What are are the the rational reasons for the U.S. having such a a premium valuation relative to the rest of the world? Um, And unfortunately, when when we've done that, personally, I have found most of the explanations to be very wanting. Um, So, uh, you know, one of the most common ones, low interest rates, just doesn't cut the mustard uh, on on multiple different levels. Um, First, there is no provable relationship between interest rates and valuation. Uh, second, there are any number of other countries that have low interest rates, Europe, um, Japan for, forever, um, yet they haven't enjoyed high multiples. Um, so you, you you automatically begin to question the, the sanity of, of that statement, that the low rates are the, the justification for high multiples. I think the one where I have perhaps the, the most sympathy Um, but still not, uh, I I don't find overwhelmingly compelling, is that the U.S. has um, higher quality companies. Um, And I think that is, in essence, true. There are some exceptional businesses that happen to be domiciled in the U.S., uh, but I I simply don't think it justifies the degree of the premium uh, that that we witness. Um, And so I come down still on the side of, mean reversion yes it's it's taken a long time and and that's how you end up with cheap markets right or expensive markets is if they go on for a long time and Rudy Dornbush always used to say these things go on for longer than you expect and then end faster than you expect Um, and they've certainly fulfilled the first part of that uh, over over the last decade where emerging has got cheaper and cheaper uh, and the US has become more and more expensive Um, so certainly our our, uh, Our faith has been well and truly tested. But as of yet, I haven't found a compelling, sensible explanation that explains that differential.
1: I think it was at SockGen, you penned a piece that I've always really liked called The Seven Immutable Laws of Investing. That's got to be at least a decade old, right?
2: Uh, That one was, yeah, I think I wrote that for GMO, actually. So it's about a decade old
1: tell us how you assembled that list it's a nice run of seven different bullet points we'll we'll go over some of them but what was the process like of putting that list together
2: it was it was really a, a an exercise in in trying to distill um, the experience of, of myself and and many others um, into something that was easily digestible uh, and uh, as I realized as I described that I, I've committed one of the sins I, I hate which is kind of the great dumbing down of, of everything. Um, the, the reduction of, of anything important to 240 characters drives me to, to distraction. Uh, and I was suddenly struck that the Seven Immutable Laws was an attempt to do exactly that, which is somewhat embarrassing. Um, but uh, it was really about trying to distill the wisdom um, of a great deal of, of um, investors past who I had respected, Ben Graham, John Maynard Keynes. To John Templeton, uh, Warren Buffett, obviously, numerous others, um, and and really come down to a list of of things that I would held to be always true, um, that if I had to to kind of pass this on to my kids without ever being able to talk to them again, what would I tell them were the kind of the rules they had to follow um, in order to to make sensible investment decisions.
1: So you've mentioned always insist on a margin of safety, which I associate with both Ben Graham and Seth Klarman, who had a book of the same name. Let, let's talk about rule number two, which I'm going to assume is channeling John Templeton. This time is never different. Explain the thinking behind that.
2: Right. So I think that the, that was really born out of thinking about Um, Our experience of bubbles, Uh, I'm particularly talking with my my former colleague and and very good friend, Edward Chancellor, um, who wrote a wonderful book called Devil Takes the Hindmost, um, which is an extraordinary history of of speculative mania. Um, And it struck me that uh, looking at his work, looking at uh, Charles Kindleberger's Mania's Panics and Crashes, um, there were an awful lot of, of similarities um, to our experience with manias, bubbles, and, and these kinds of environments. Um, of course, the details are always different. Um, but actually, there is a, a core of rhyming within each of these experiences that is always true. And therefore, uh, it was indeed Sir John Templeton who said um, the um, the foremost dangerous words is of uh, this time is never different. Probably five most dangerous words in investing. Uh, this time is never different. Uh, Jeremy uh, Grantham takes a, a slightly different view um, and and says from a value manager's perspective, uh, the the most dangerous words are uh, this time is is is, uh, is is never different in in a slightly different way. Um, he points out that he we constantly assume mean reversion um, and perhaps that, that that can be an error sometimes. Um, So that they become um, pretty, pretty dangerous, whereas uh, everybody seems to believe to me that this time is different is the the usual explanation. So the tech bubble is the prime example Uh, going through the tech bubble. Oh, you don't understand. This time is different because bang, 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 Um, which it it just it's never been true yet. Um, I didn't understand that shiny phones were going to change the world back then. Um, In fact, they they did. The Internet did change uh, the world in in ways that I couldn't even begin to imagine, Uh, but generally not in a highly profitable fashion, Um, and certainly not the fashion that people were pricing in 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 1999-2000. So to me, remembering that this time is never different is really just reminding ourselves that human experience is is sadly not linear, It, it tends to be more cyclical. Seth Klarman, whose book you mentioned, The Margin of Safety, Uh, has uh, a a wonderful uh, discussion in it about collateralized bond obligations um, during uh, the the early 1990s, which have um, uncanny parallels with uh, the experience with um, uh, collateralized loan obligations in uh, 2007, 2008. Um, And so you, you constantly find that Um, these these parallels come back Um, and Galbraith had a a nice expression which was um, um, the world keeps going and and finance is the one industry where we keep reinventing the wheel each time in a slightly more unstable fashion um, which I kind of like as a a summation of of most of the kind of problems of finance but remembering that this time is is never different is just a, a reminder that Hey, We've seen most of this before, we've seen this movie before, we know how it ends, and it generally doesn't end well.
1: So the asset classes and the circumstances and the specifics may change from cycle to cycle, but it sounds like human nature itself is immutable.
2: Exactly, right? Precisely.
1: So there's a couple of others that, that I like. Be patient and wait for the fat pitch. That, that sounds like you're channeling Warren Buffett there a bit.
2: Exactly. That, that is definitely a, a Buffettism, um, the, the fat pitch and Ted Williams. And I had to learn a lot about baseball to understand that one, um, which is not easy, as you can tell from my accent. Um, but uh, once I got the hang of it, I said, like, oh, yeah, I get it. Um, really about waiting for those r- good opportunities. You know that there, there are long amounts of time when doing nothing is the right thing to do. And that's really hard because people expect uh, their investment managers to, to be active, to be doing stuff. But there are long periods when there are no fat pitches, in which case you shouldn't be doing stuff. Um, don't uh, don't do something just fit there kind of thing, um, and and that can be very hard to to justify. But ultimately, makes, makes a lot of sense. it allows you to yeah. right. It allows you to exploit the opportunities when they do come along.
1: So number four is a real challenge because uh, I'm I'm reminded in the scene. Uh, 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 from the Monty Python movie, Life of Brian, where Brian is speaking to the multitudes and says, you're all individuals, you're all different. And every one of them repeats in unison, we are all individuals, we are all (laughs) different. And, And number four is be a contrarian. How challenging is it to be a contrarian with so much career risk and so much peer
2: pressure to do what the crowd is doing absolutely and and it, it's really I think the the essence of investing um, and you can trace that back to to Ben Graham to, to Maynard Keynes um, they they all have quotes in fact every good value investor I think has a quote uh, on the importance of being contrarian um, and one of the the contributions that I think um, Jeremy Grantham has, has really made, to our understanding of that is why it is so hard to do. And, and there are two different sources of, of hurdles, if you like, that we have to overcome. One is, is human nature. Human nature tells us that it is warmer and safer in the middle of the herd, and we should probably stay there. Um, we don't like to look different with social animals. And then there is on the other the other set of hurdles are really what one would describe as um, the institutional imperative. And, and that's really Keynes's uh observation about career risk uh which is obviously it is far better for reputation to fail conventionally than to succeed unconventionally um and the combination of those two that that innate human desire to be similar to other people and then the uh overlay of the institutional framework um really do make it incredibly hard to be a contrarian uh but ultimately uh, this is a Templeton quote. Uh, if you want different results from other people, you have to do something different from other people. Um, and so we, we we end up there saying, OK, you, ha- you just have to be a contrarian. It doesn't mean you have to be a blind contrarian. It doesn't mean you have to be unthinking. Uh, I, I suggest both of those are foolish. Uh, but I think, ultimately, you have to be prepared to look different uh, if you want to achieve a decent set of investment results, or at least different ones. And that is something that people find incredibly hard to do.
1: So you wrote these in 2011. They're published on the GMO site. If you were rewriting this list today, would you change any? Would you shift the order around? How has a decade altered your perception of this list of seven immutable laws of investing?
2: I'm 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 kind of glad to say I wouldn't rewrite any of them. Um I, I I'm glad to say the immutable part is still true. Um I, I never really thought about the order. They they were just kind of I didn't write them in any specific order of importance. Um and so I think all seven of them are, are probably as true today as, as they were um when I wrote them. Um but uh, I'm I'm glad to say I, I definitely wouldn't um rewrite any of them
1: uh let's talk a little bit about your role at gmo what does being on the asset allocation team there entail
2: so it's it's my role is is a research role um and and that's one that i i I thrive on um i enjoy and enjoy solving puzzles and to me investing is perhaps the ultimate puzzle uh it's never exactly the same um And there are always uncertainties. And really, um, my job is is to to sit there and and think. Um, My my children asked me, um, my daughter turned around to me and said, what do you do for a living, Dad? Uh, And I said, well, I think. Um, And and she was, I don't think, enormously enamored with that answer. uh, But it is essentially what I am paid to do. Uh, I'm paid to sit here and and think about life, the universe and everything, um, and really understand as much of that as I can and make sure that, that we are investing in a way that, that kind of makes sense.
1: That, that reference sounded like a uh, Douglas Adams title. So uh, so let, yeah, me right. have you th- let me have you think about uh, uh, something that I, I find, a puzzle that I find quite fascinating and challenging, and it has to do with valuations. And the question is this. The world has changed over the past century, Does it make sense to compare valuations of today with those in the 1930s and 40s or or the 1980s and 90s? How has the inherent capital structure of companies, what they need in terms of labor and material, changed from, I don't know, five, ten decades ago versus today's fast light, uh, two two founders and a laptop and, and the Amazon cloud? Versus tons and tons of steel and factories and thousands of employees, do we really have the same valuation, met- valuation metrics today that we had early last century?
2: It's, a, it's an extraordinarily good question. I think that there is, there is a, another Ben Graham quote, which is uh, effectively um, that the, the only constant is change. Uh, and it is certainly true, right? And I I totally understand that when one's comparing long runs of data, let's say looking at a a, a Schiller KPE, in the 1880s that reflected an environment which was essentially mainly railroads. Um, Today that does not seem like a terribly useful proxy for uh, anything of any interest. Uh, However, I think it is worth pointing out that uh, in the 1880s, railroads were were cutting edge. Right? Um, they were uh, the railroad boom booms of the 1840s and 1870s um, were were the cutting edge of technology. And so, I think the stock market obviously evolves over time. Its composition evolves over time, uh, but it is often with a strong um, technological bias. And it's a wonderful. Uh, book by uh, a friend of mine called Sandy, N- his name is Sandy Nairn and the book is called The Engines That Move Markets. He he actually worked as the uh, head of research uh, uh, for Templeton um, a long time ago um, and uh, in that book he traces all of these waves of technological innovation from the railroads through uh, to the telegraphs, to, to radio, to television, to the automobiles, etc. Um, and the one thing they all have in common is they start off generating enormous returns. People then drive the prices up to a bubble uh, or something that approximates a bubble. They, they effectively extrapolate profitability uh, into prices. Um, and eventually that bubble unwinds because the gains of that technology end up with the consumers, not the producers. Um, and to me, that is why I think that we get these, these kind of historical echoes and it makes some sense to uh, to say, hey, look, there are some constants in valuation. That isn't to say every valuation metric is perfect. It isn't. Uh, Price to book is a really good example. Price to book gets distorted by uh, things like buybacks. Um, and so you end up with companies with negative book value, which is essentially economically meaningless. Um, and so you, you have to kind of, you can't take, um these these things at face value and say hey look uh yeah mcdonald's is trading on a negative book value yeah because it's done an enormous amount of buybacks um and so i think you do have to to uh apply some some thought. and and ben Inker, um my boss said to me the other day uh we were having a discussion in a group and and he said we always reserve the right to use our brains Uh, And I think that is a a sound piece of advice, as I can imagine. We should always reserve the right to use our brains. Um, And there will be times when you you want to question stuff. Um, The role of the stock market itself has changed. Um, The stock market used to be a method of of financing companies. That hasn't been true since um, really the mid-1980s. Companies do not, in general, come to the market um to 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 raise uh, capital in inequities unless they IPO everybody else doesn't and so uh, the amount of buybacks far outstrips the amount of, of IPOs uh, and so what we actually see is negative issuance so there are differences that it's important to recognize uh and one does have to think carefully about the valuation metrics uh, that one chooses to use but i think uh, a lot of them and, and the, the higher the aggregate level the, the more they make sense so, looking at a, a Schiller or Cake PE for the aggregate market, I think, is, is a lot more sensible than trying to look at Apple or Google or Amazon's Schiller PE, which I, I think is, is pretty meaningless. Um, so, I think it does depend on, on the uh, level of the analysis and the, the particular specifics of the analysis.
3: Com.
1: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Huh.
3: Can't,
1: can't say I argue with any of that. Let, let me have you use your brain on another uh, issue that, that I've been – and I think a lot of people have been perplexed by, and that's the issue of negative interest rates at a lot of uh, industrialized nations. We, we briefly saw some short-term treasuries go negative in the United States – what does it mean to see so much of the world dabbling with negative interest rates, and are we going to see this
2: in the United States? It's fascinating, right? Because people, central banks, when they, when they take rates negative, uh, I, I genuinely don't understand what they're thinking. Um, I can get why you want to take late, rates low, low if you're a central banker. I do not understand negative interest rates, because negative interest rates are a tax on banks. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, I, I'm perfectly happy to tax banks, uh, but from a, uh, a policy response to uh, effectively trying to uh, create an economic stimulus, one of the things I do remember from economics is that the taxes are, are a, a leakage, they're a break on, on economics, not, not, uh, not a stimulus. Um, and so therefore, relying on negative interest rates to try and boost activity, I think is, is kind of weird. Um, I don't think it makes a great deal of economic sense. Um, I think it also kind of blows up a lot of people's models, because uh, an awful lot of, of modern day asset pricing, for, for better or worse, uh, takes its, its cue from, from the, uh, the interest rates. Now, much as I don't think that's particularly sensible, um, I do acknowledge that a lot of people behave that way, um, and it does strike me that the negative interest rates could potentially muck up quite a lot of of, of that approach. Um, And so I I think it's it's an odd policy um, with unknown consequences, um, which I I do not think should be pursued lightly. Um, As to whether the US is is ever gonna get there, I have absolutely no idea. if I if I go back um twenty years I, I, I used to be one of those people who said uh oh, interest rates can't go below zero. Um because you know, it seems so unthinkable. Um and yet um I probably should have to go back more than a decade, right? Two decades for me to have been saying that. Um but uh, fast forward and um uh, there we are, we we've seen them. So um never say never, I guess.
1: Right. It 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 ain't called the zero bound for nothing, although I guess maybe it right. was. So let me ask you a different policy question. You seem to be somewhat enamored of modern monetary theory, which basically says stop freaking out over deficits. If the government issues currency and it's it has control of its own currency and can issue debt that people want to buy, deficits aren't the end of the world. Tell us a little bit. Uh, in this election year, what you think about modern monetary theory and what it means for how we should be assessing how governments will be interacting with markets.
2: Yeah, I think MMT, modern monetary theory, is um, uh, that that very – that that label tends to to get people's hackles rising, right? It's um, you know it doesn't matter whether it's it's on the right or the left, and and people get very upset and, and very passionate and start throwing Zimbabwe around and, and, and hyperinflation in Venezuela and those sorts of things. Um, but actually, I, I think it that the core of what I perceive as, of monetary modern monetary theory is uh, a descriptive model of how the world actually works, um, and it says that. Uh, effectively, governments don't have to finance uh, their, their deficits if, as you say, they are what we call monetarily sovereign, i.e. they, they issue uh, bonds in a currency which they control. So it is absolutely uh, a description of the US, Japan and the UK. It is absolutely not a description of the Eurozone, uh, where the, the countries obviously uh, issue debt in Euros, which they, they don't control. Uh, that's in the hands of, of the ECB. Um So I think there is this this kind of common belief that governments are are really like households. Um, They have to live within their means. Um, And I think that's just fundamentally false as a paradigm. Uh, And I think when you begin to understand the way that um, governments spend uh, and and potentially the reason why even money exists, um, it really exists as a uh, form of debt settlement. uh, And that is true Pretty much as far back as anybody can go, um, the, the, the geld is the word for for guilt, an obligation, um, which is is the the um, the, the historical uh, form of money, um, and so I think it, it to my mind, um, MMT is a much more uh, accurate description of the way the world works and therefore understanding how the world works, which is ultimately kind of my aim in life is, is, goes back to, uh, the topic we were on earlier. I'm, I'm paid to sit and think and try and understand the world. Um, well, MMT to me offers a much better framework for understanding the way the world works than, uh, a lot of, of other economics. Uh, and it does lead one to, to say that, look, budget deficits are, are not nearly as problematic uh as, as people believe you know there's a school of thought that they lead to incredibly high interest rates well just look at the evidence uh that's not the case right now and it, it hasn't been the case in japan for a very very long time where they've run uh very low interest rates and, and very big um government deficits and quite rightly uh, they've had to do that um but it, it certainly those deficits haven't led to high interest rates um Then you get people turning around and saying, oh, well, printing money to to finance budget deficits is inflationary. And you're like, really? Uh, Where's the evidence for that? Um, First of all, governments uh, don't actually worry about printing money. It's how they've always acted. Uh, You have to print money in order to to spend it um, and to get it into circulation before people can even pay their taxes. Um, So there's kind of a, a whole series of myths that people have um that are, are very much uh caught up with the the analogy of, of governments and households and it's certainly true for households they cannot live sustainably uh beyond their means but it is not the case for government um huh. they can they can as long as they uh meet the criteria we we talked about earlier that they they are absolutely capable of going out and spending it, it's very interesting that today we see a much broader acceptance of that um, in the response to the various um, corona outbreaks around the world, and here in the UK, where we, government is underwriting eighty percent of people's wages, um, and, and that would have been unthinkable. Uh, we, for we, the, you know, we uh, saw for, uh, the conservative government.
1: Right. We we saw what happened post financial crisis when the austerians were in control and were more focused about balancing budgets than helping the economy recover, that didn't end especially well in the U.K. or the United States, did it?
2: No, exactly right. In the U.S., you had the, the, the slowest and weakest recovery ever. Um, and in the U.K., it was a total disaster. Um, we we essentially didn't have any recovery. Um, and so the, the Austerians and and the, the kind of advocates of, of sound finance, which is the balance, you must balance the budget, etc., Uh, I think, uh, uh, are at odds with sensible evidence-based economics. And and I'm a big fan of evidence-based anything, evidence-based medicine, evidence-based investing, evidence-based economics. Uh, One should always mark one's beliefs to to market, check the, the real world, see how it looks.
1: So last quote of yours before we get to our speed round. And I want you to expound on this. Don't equate happiness with money. Materialistic pursuits are not a path to sustainable happiness. Explain.
2: So, uh, yeah, a long time ago, um, I I wrote a couple of notes on on how to be happy. Um, And it just struck me as something that uh, I I spent a long time working at investment banks at that stage. um, And... I I kind of was was slightly worried that I looked into people's eyes and it was like staring into the zombies eyes the lights were on, but nobody was home Um, and they seemed dead on the inside. And I I really couldn't fathom how that could happen. Um, And I I began to to do some research on on happiness and and the science of happiness. Uh, And it turns out that there are a number of people who have, have thought about happiness. Um, and one of the, the big difficulties is, is that people tend to uh, associate happiness with, with uh, wealth or, or income. And don't get me wrong, a certain level of income is necessary. Um, but, but beyond that level of uh, kind of uh, that threshold, it really isn't obvious that, that greater increases in wealth and income lead people to be happy. Um, for the uh, vast majority of people trapped in poverty, of course, uh, an improvement in their income would help them. Uh, But for, uh, let's say, you know, the top uh, uh, 10% of the population, um, increasing their material um, worth is is probably not going to have a great deal of impact on on their happiness. And I think that the problem a lot of people have is um, what we call um, hedonic adaptation, which is you get used to stuff very quickly. Um, so you get a new car and you really love it and it feels great, but within six, three, six, twelve months, whatever it may be, it's just your car, right? Your kids are in the back, they've scuffed up the back seats, they've put their muddy boots on it, uh, the dog's been in the boot, and it, it's really not a new car, and it's it, it's devalued quite a lot in your own eyes, let alone its its economic worth. Um, and so we, we, we're we on this, what they call the hedonic treadmill um, that we, we adapt very fast to uh, our environment on our, our material uh, ownership. Um, and this rang through with me because when I was young, I spent a long time traveling the world. Uh, and some of the poorest people were amongst the, the happiest I've ever met. I was traveling in, in Thailand and there were people who essentially had very, very little. And yet they were absolutely uh, some of the nicest, friendliest people I ever met, and they were willing to share what little they had with me, a stranger just travelling through their village. Um, and I started reading uh, both science and then the Dalai Lama uh, on on happiness. And and the Dalai Lama is an interesting man because he very uh, obviously a very spiritual individual, but one who is absolutely certain that if science proves something that he believes to be wrong, that he will update his beliefs. Um, and there I found uh, a, a lot of wisdom about um, the, the way to be happy is, is not uh, surrounding oneself with materialistic possessions, um, but experiences. Uh, and to me, that, that really rings true. And I think too many people focus far too much on, on, uh, on money um, and materialistic pursuits rather than on thinking about what might make them um, a happier individual.
1: Tom Gilovich, I know, has written some research that echoes exactly what you're saying. Experiences are far more lasting and social than mere objects. So I know I only have exactly. you for a limited. Yep, I know I only have you for a limited amount of time. Let's jump to our speed round. Um, normally these are ten questions, but given our circumstances, we're going to keep them to five. Uh, tell us what you are watching today. What are you streaming on Netflix or? Any other service? What are you podcasting or listening to?
2: I am something of a Luddite, I confess. I, I'm probably much more likely to be found reading a book than, than I am watching television. But I have to say, uh, on Netflix, I did thoroughly enjoy Stranger Things. Uh, that, to me, was a, a, a very well-made and entertaining program.
1: If you like Stranger Things, let me recommend Electric Dreams. I think that's Amazon Prime. Um, but it's a similar concept. We'll see. We'll see if you like that. Uh, oh, early excellent. mentors. We'll have a look at it. Early mentors. Um, who
2: influenced your career? Uh, Albert Edwards, above and beyond all else. Uh, my, my. Uh, we spent, gosh, nearly eighteen years working together. I think, um, and he had a huge impact on me from when I, I was joined uh, the team he was on when I was a junior economist way back all those years ago, um, and watching the way that Albert worked and thought um, really did um, define the way that that today I I work and think.
1: Hmm, Quite interesting. You mentioned you're spending a lot of time reading. Tell us some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, finance, or anything else. What have you been enjoying, Uh, and what are you looking forward to reading?
2: I, I try to read fairly widely. Um, I, I think one can often find insights into all sorts of problems um, from from very different perspectives. But I think um, my favorite investment book uh, is probably Seth Klarman's Margin of Safety, which we've, we've uh, mentioned earlier. I think there is uh, a tremendous amount of, of value in there. Um, outside of that, I'm currently reading a book on biomechanics. Um, I, I, my big passion outside of investing is, is Taekwondo. And um, I was fortunate enough last week to take part in a seminar with uh, one of the the Russian grandmasters, um, Grandmaster Kang, and uh, he's a, a big exponent of, of understanding biomechanics to to improve our taekwondo performance. Uh, and so I'm I'm trying to understand how physics applies to the human body right now. Huh? Give us one other. What else are you reading and enjoying? Um, what else am I reading? Really enjoy. I actually enjoy a, a really my guilty pleasure is airport thrillers. Um, I, I will read almost any airport thriller uh, when I'm stuck on a plane. I, I will quite happily dig into pretty much any thriller. Um, so uh, the lower brow, the better.
1: Uh, give us an author's name of these low brow thrillers.
2: Uh, me, I, I kind of, uh, I, I do like uh, Mark Billingham. He, he writes a series of, of, uh, of detective novels that I find um, most enjoyable.
1: What sort of advice would you give a recent college grad who was thinking about going into the investment field?
2: Don't do it. <laughs> Go and Explain do something why. useful with your life instead. No, I I think that um, that investing needs bright, sensible people, but I kind of think there's an awful lot else that we need in this world, and investing is is probably not the the highest and best pursuit. Um, I think far too many people who go into investing are kind of blinded by the dollars, Um, and so I I think um, go and become a doctor or an engineer or or something that might actually help humanity.
1: (laughs) And our final question what do you know about your chosen field of investing today, that you wish you knew thirty years ago when you were first getting started?
2: Oh man, that's such a good question. I think um, I, I wish I knew not to be so confident. Um, my 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 very first uh, job was as a uh, an FX strategist, and I had an incredibly humbling lesson where I um, I recommended a position uh, that was short the Swedish krona. Um, based on some very bad economic analysis that I'd done. Uh, it turned out eventually to be correct, but in the first week that we had that trade on, um, the, the head of the Forex division uh, told me we lost more money in that uh, on that trade than I made in, in an entire year. Now, I was a graduate, so I didn't make a huge amount, but it was an incredibly humbling experience. Uh, and I think um, the older I get, the, the less certain I am about almost everything. Um, which is, is, I'm not sure it's a good thing or not, but certainly I wish the younger me had not been quite as arrogant and um, confident as as I was.
1: We have been speaking with James Montier. He He is a member of the GMO Asset Allocation Team. He is the author of such books as Behavioral Investing, A Practitioner's Guide to Implying Behavioral Finance, The Little Book of Behavioral Investing, and Value Investing, Tools and Techniques for Intelligent Management. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the prior 300 such conversations we've had before. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at at mibpodcast.bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put together these conversations each week. Charlie Vollmer is my audio engineer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Michael Boyle is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.